Well, as I say, it's good to see everyone that's here. And just for those who are not aware, our weekend continues tomorrow morning. We have a men's breakfast tomorrow, 8.30. Uh, for those of you who may not have signed up for that, I'm sort of battling in my conscience as to say whether or not you're welcome to come tomorrow. <laughs> what I mean is more whether there'll be food sufficient for us all. But of course, I think all of us would sacrifice a little of our own uh, breakfast to have you present with us. So if you didn't sign up, but you'd like to be here tomorrow morning and join with us at 8.30 for Pastor Barkman's first address and then the breakfast that falls at 9.30, you come along anyway. We'll not hold any grudges there. We'll, we'll count it our own fault that we didn't get the, the information to you in time and we'll welcome you and be glad that you're with us. So keep that in mind tomorrow morning. And then on the Lord's Day, of course, it continues, and again, Dr. Matsko will address us for our Sunday school hour, again, 9.30, that's that, and then the morning worship and the evening worship, the preaching on that occasion will be by Pastor Bartman, and he'll be bringing the Word of God in themes and doctrines that very much tie into our great Reformation heritage and the Lord's mercy to his people 500 years ago and the years that have followed since. So... With all that said, I want to welcome Dr. Matsko. He's no stranger to those who are part of this congregation. He's been here a while, let's just say. And he is a brother beloved. And I have the privilege and both the challenge of ministering and preaching the word to a congregation that's scattered through it, perhaps in a, an unusual, uh, per capita if you are to count it in that way, an unusual uh, challenge of having all these eminent knowledgeable individuals in all sorts of areas and arenas, uh, music and history and legal matters and all the rest of it. And our brother has written at least a couple of books that I'm aware of, so he has gotten that far in his career, and one of them not that long ago, uh, The Best Men of the Bar, if I'm remembering correctly, and uh, we're very glad to have him, glad to have him in our church. As I say, he is a brother beloved, dearly beloved, and uh, many of you have known him for a long time. And you hold him highly and esteem him highly in the Lord for his work's sake and for his testimony among us in his loyalty to Christ. Brother, we're glad you're here. Trust the Lord will help you. And uh, there will be a Q&A that will follow. So take notes. Any questions that come? Uh, I know that Dr. Matsko is very glad that, to see Dr. Sidwell here as well, just in case we need some historical backup as well. So we have, we have it covered. I think we'll be fine. But uh, just take notes. Any questions? There'll be a time to follow. Brother, God bless you. Thank you. Yeah, how many people would come out on this dreary Friday night? But this is a, to me, this is a great crowd. And uh, I'm a teacher. I'm not a, I'm not a preacher. So at the end, there's no application, but there is question and answers if you'd, if you'd like. And I'm not, and I haven't gone too long. Um, I, I might say that I have quite a few slides, so that if, you're, if the pulpit is blocking your view and you want to move out to the sides or someplace, that's, don't f feel you know, free to move to the sides where you can see. So we're celebrating this year the 500th anniversary of the Diet of Worms, or Worms, as it should be. And the first thing we have to do <laughs> is get a painful joke out of the way. Um, 
you know, uh, what, can, what can I say here? Um, by the way, they, the, um, the PowerPoint is supposed to give you uh, artificial intelligence generated subjects for the slides. And for this slide, it said a bucket of pretzels. <laughs> I just turned it off on the first slide. I turned it off. <laughs> a student once asked me while I was standing in front of the class if there was a connection between the word diet, meaning uh, a meeting of political leaders, and the diet, which is eating less food. And it was one of those things, you know, as a teacher, it just caught me completely off guard, and I said, I'll get back to you on that one. And um, the answer is that there is, sort of, okay. Um, the food kind of diet is how much food you eat per day. And the political kind of diet is a meeting set for a certain day. For instance, when the counselors of the Holy Roman Empire, Empire met in an assembly. Um, Possibly, but not absolutely certainly, the medieval Latin word dieta comes from the classical Latin word dies. If you actually look this up, you'll find the experts disagree about this, but that's probably what happened. That word, that day word, got stuck in German too because they have the Bundestag, and the Tag part is the day. If for anybody who knows about that kind of thing. In passing, there's absolutely no etymological connection between the city of Worms in Germany and the critters that crawl on the ground. That it's just chance completely, there's no connection at all. Okay. So, looking at this map, just how many statelets, how many little principalities do you think were part of the Holy Roman Empire? in Luther's day. Um, and your guess is as good as anybody else's. Uh, we're going to say roughly 300, but the emphasis should be on the roughly part. Uh, if you want to make it more, you can make it more, maybe up to 1,000, depending on what you count, or fewer. So, But that's why the Holy Roman Empire had diets, because the empire was so loosely organized, it had no national legislature, it had no capital, and the rulers or their representatives had to gather around at cities. They, they just went from one city to another, um, wherever the city was big enough to um, take care of their meetings where they could accommodate the meetings. And the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire had a lot less uh, clout than you might think. I mean, his job was more like herding cats than it was ruling. You have the feeling that an emperor is going to rule with an iron hand, but that wasn't true in the 16th century. Even during the reign um, of the, probably one of the most important and, and uh, uh, well-known Habsburg rulers, Charles V. In fact, back in my teaching day, back they don't make maps anymore, but back you know when I started we use maps, and they were on stands, and, and the map said there was a map for Charlemagne, and there was a map for Napoleon, but the only other map in that set of European history was a map, it said Europe at the time of Charles V. 
So he was the only other guy that got a map named after him. So that's how important he was. He controlled more of Europe than anyone else in the thousand years between Charlemagne, which is about 800, and, and uh, Napoleon, which is 1800, so it's almost exactly a thousand years. And here's his, here's his the countries that he reigned uh, over. Um, he was king of Spain when he was chosen to be Holy Roman Emperor. He, um, because he was king of Spain, he owned part of Italy. And also, he ruled over Austria and, importantly, the Low Countries, which is uh, Netherlands, Belgium, Luxembourg today. And then you see the dotted line. Anything in the dotted line was the Holy Roman Empire. So in theory, he controlled that as well. And then, of course, um, you all remember Cortes and Pizarro and Aztecs and Incas, someplace in your um, maybe... I remember getting it in grade school, and then it came back in high school, and then it came back in college again. So in my generation, anyway, everybody knew those names. But because, because he was king of Spain, and Spain had conquered South America, if you look on the right side, you see also Mexico and Peru, et cetera, are also part of his dominions. Don't you think he looks a little peculiar? Well, that strange face includes what's sometimes called the Habsburg jaw. It was the result of centuries of interbreeding among the Habsburgs. They just kept burying in the family. Things got worse and worse, as you might imagine. It's, he, th this whole business of the Habsburg jaw, it's a real term, by the way. If you put it in Google, put it in Habsburg jaw, you'll come up with a whole series of rulers with faces that are uh, out of line. The, um, it's a pretty good reason why you shouldn't marry your cousin, especially over a number of generations. By the end of the time, the cousins were so closely related that genetically they were brother and sister, so this is bad news. <laughs> anyway, um, Charles eventually grew a beard and also got some more flattering artists to paint his portrait, so he, 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 looked, he looked a little better later. A hundred years later, the last king of Spain, you've all heard of this someplace probably if you, if you went to college, you have no idea what it was or why it was important, but you've all heard of it, the War of the Spanish Succession. The War of the Spanish Succession was caused by the fact that um, the last king of Spain was incapable of having progeny. And his, also his jaw was so out of line that he couldn't chew his food. So, that's, so his successor was, every, people were just waiting for him to die, and then, then they had the War of the Spanish Succession. But intellectually, Charles was no dummy. There's no, no problem with him. In fact, I, I don't know how many languages he knew, but more than three. Into this early modern world of Charles V came Martin Luther, who was a little bit older than Charles. And these are his parents. Um, beautiful portraits by Lucas Cranach. Uh, so why, why, do we have a, why do we have such beautiful portraits paintings of Luther's parents? And the answer is because Luther was so young when he became famous that his parents were still alive. And so Lucas Cranach, who was a friend of his, um, went and painted their portraits. I think they're, they're, great, they're great pictures. He um, grew up, his boyhood home was Mansfeld. Uh, I, I can't tell, I can't see the numbers, but maybe you can. Number one is his boyhood home. It's still there. And, and number three is the school 
where he went next to the church there. And then I have a map so you can see approximately where Mansfeld is in, in Germany. So here's, here's his parents' house, which is a museum these days. And then for what we call secondary school, he went to Eisenach. And in theory, um, he, tradition says that he lived in this house uh, while he was attending his school there. And, and he was, of course, a very bright guy. And he was, you know, he was a superior student in the kinds of things that got taught, grammar, rhetoric, poetry, that kind of thing. But the interesting thing about Luther was that he was also well known for his sweet tenor voice. Who would have guessed? I mean, wouldn't you say, ah, right? This is the kind of guy Luther is. Sweet tenor voice. He had a beautiful singing voice. He played the lute. And, uh, of course, <clears throat> A Mighty Fortress um, is, was written not only the, the words, but also the tune. Some of the other tunes, um, he wrote other tunes too. We're not quite sure whether he, how much help he had. But he was, a, he was a decent, for his era, he was a decent musician. This is Luther as a teenager. Now, I just talked about his parents being um, pictured, you know, by Cranach. So who was drawing sketches of Luther when he was a teenager? Answer? Nobody. This is a 1971 conjectural drawing. But it's very convincing. <laughs> and then for university, um, he went to the University of Erfurt. Now, his father... Had been, a, had been a peasant who became a miner. And so he was moving up. And he wanted his son to take the next step. And the next step was to become a lawyer. So he wanted his son to be a lawyer. So Luther entered the university as a lawyer. But he didn't stay as a lawyer very long. Um, you know, there's a famous scene where he's in a storm and he promises St. Anne, the patron saint of miners, that if she will protect his life, he will become a monk. And so that's what he did. He entered the monastery in 1505, much to his father's displeasure. His father wanted him to move up in the world so he'd have an income and take care of him when he was, you know, old. And uh, Luther didn't do that. The vicar general for the Augustinians was this man, uh, Johannes von Staupitz, and Luther once said, if it weren't for Staupitz, I'd be in hell. But Staupitz never left the Catholic Church. He died a Catholic, which is very interesting. It's one of those things, you know. Um, the, the picture of the monastery you see is not just the generic image. That really is the monastery at Erfurt. So Luther became a priest in 1507. And according to the, the Catholic doctrine, when he became a priest, it was a second baptism. And so he got all his sins wiped out again, just like you were supposed to at baptism. Uh, so all the guilt and punishment for his sins was supposed to be gone. But Luther was greatly troubled in spirit. And he practiced all kinds of mortifications of the flesh to try to relieve the guilt of his sin. Um, he fasted sometimes for three days without eating anything at all. He spent monumental t amounts of time in vigils and prayers. He um, threw off the blankets that the monastery allowed him to use and um, tried to sleep in the cold without them. In fact, there's even a story. I, 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 
I'm a little shaky about saying this because this is one of those maybe so, that he went out in the snow and tried to sleep in the snow and the brothers went and grabbed him and dragged him back in so he wouldn't kill himself. Of course, none of this sort of thing did anything for uh, Luther's guilt. It probably damaged his health for the rest of his life. I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If I had kept on it any longer, I should have killed myself. Meanwhile, Luther said later, he had no love for God. How could he love a God whose righteousness was continually judging the unrighteousness of men? I did not love, indeed I hated this just God who punished sinners. Luther's guilt and terror of God was so profound and so intense that even his superior Stoppitz, who was something of a mystic, couldn't understand it. But he had an idea. He had a bright idea how he might quiet Luther's tormented spirit. Stoppitz ordered Luther to study for his doctor's degree and then become a professor of Bible. What a wonderful decision that was, because that meant Luther had to actually study the Bible himself instead of continue to immerse himself in all the theological nonsense that, were re- that was required of educated clergymen during the Middle Ages. Shortly before Luther received his doctorate in 1512, Stoppitz transferred him to the monastery at Wittenberg, a tiny town of 3,000, with a new university founded in 1502. So um, Erfurt was on the scale of it had about 30,000, so it's on the scale of Taylor, South Carolina. And uh, Erfurt, uh, excuse me, uh, Wittenberg had 3,000, so that's on the scale of Bob Jones University campus as far as the number of people are there. Note how far east Wittenberg is. It was in the, in the old East Germany before the wall came down. While Luther lectured on the Bible at the university and preached in the city church, he came to understand that justification came not through any works that man could do, but through the merits of Christ appropriated by faith alone. So just when did this happen? When did this happen? When did he make this discovery? And it would be pleasant to believe that Luther understood the doctrines of grace in 1517, when he protested papal indulgences and effectively sparked the Reformation. But I don't think so. I don't think Luther had yet arrived at a complete understanding of sola fide, only faith, in 1517. Um, For one thing, Luther himself says, I wish I had known when I started this what I know now. So I'm pretty sure that he didn't know. He He didn't completely understand the gospel of grace at this moment. But there's something else. If he had known what he did know later, he would have described his opposition to indulgences in a different way than he did. Certainly, Luther wasn't shy about expressing his beliefs once he was convinced he knew what the Bible taught. So it's not like he was trying to hide something. If he had known something before, he would have, it would have been clear. He would have told everybody. <laughs> so we need to back up a little bit here, right? And just talk about indulgences a bit. You probably remember that, that Pope Leo X, who reigned from 1513 to 1521, so he actually dies in the year of the Diet of Worms, that Leo X had approved a scheme whereby a goodly amount of money could be milked from ordinary people 
in those German statelets by selling them indulgences. In theory, anyway, that money was supposed to uh, be used to build a new St. Peter's Cathedral on the spot where recent popes had pulled down the old St. Peter's. The slide behind is, is the old St. Peter's. It's, it's, a, it's a building that was a thousand years old. <laughs> Can you imagine these guys, these Renaissance popes? They pulled down a thousand-year-old cathedral where Peter, was, where Peter was supposed to be buried without the money to put up a new one. That, I mean, that's just, to me, that just says Renaissance, you know. It'll happen. We'll just do it by main force. So the theory behind this business of indulgences was that the, that the, the sale of indulgences was that Christ and the saints had done so many good works while on earth that their extra good works were sort of stored up in a treasury of merits in heaven. And the Pope then could draw on that treasury of merits and use those extra good works to help out people who weren't as good as a saint. So that, that's, the, that's the theory. That's what's going on. And, you know. To hawk these indulgences, the Pope sent to Germany a Dominican monk, Johann Tetzel, who would have made a great used car salesman. Tetzel preached that not only could you buy remission of your own sins, but you could also release the souls of departed loved ones from purgatories um, with an appropriate payment of cash. He even had a, a sales jingle. As soon as the coin in coffer rings... So soon the soul to heaven springs. And if you can read the, the old German script, that's what the last two lines there say in German. In fact, if you can see the last word there, it says spring. Yeah. So we all know about the posting of the 95 Theses on October 31st, 1517. Uh, except it may not have happened. Um, everybody knows this. We're never going to change it. We're all going to agree that it happened. But the historical evidence for it is almost non-existent. Luther wrote tons of books. He, he wrote tons of pamphlets. Never mentioned it. <laughs> he never mentioned it. And it wasn't mentioned until he was dead. And by, by his second in command, Philip Melanchthon, he's the first person to say that Luther nailed the feces on the, on the door. So, I mean, it's such a wonderful picture. I saw, I remember seeing back when I was a young person, a, a film about Luther, and he, he comes up to the door with this big hammer. Boom. Boom. You know, it, it's like the echo, it's echoing down through, you know, it's just, it's just such a wonderful picture. It's, you're never going to get rid of that, that picture. I just want to let you know that the historical evidence is, is, is it's minimal. Melanchthon, who said that he did it, wasn't in Wittenberg at the time, so it had to be at least you know one stage behind that. That's just the way things are. Here's a more modern uh, business. So, so at this point, the door looks like a college bullet board. You know, <laughs> you have this the modern artist has this modern picture of what what's going on there. If you think it's like the bulletin board and people are going to come by and read the thesis, you have to remember that he posted it. If he posted it, he posted it in Latin, which nobody could read except. Uh, few people at the university, so the average people couldn't, couldn't have read it anyway. Though by this time Luther was well on his way to understanding the gospel of grace, he attacked indulgences from a remarkably Catholic perspective. 
It had never been Roman Catholic doctrine that you could buy your salvation. And certainly not for people who were already dead and in purgatory. If it were true that money thrown into the chest sent souls flying into heavenly rest, what did that say about the whole sacramental system of the Catholic Church? Like the masses and the confessions said the priests. Think about it. So, say, if you make a contribution to the church, you're gonna, you, can, you can go to heaven. Hey, why do I have to go to church? I have to, I have to say confession to the priest? There's no reason to do that. I have to go to mass? Why? Well, there's no reason. I'm just going to make a contribution, right? Run it So this is, this, even from a Catholic perspective, this doesn't work. I mean, there were lots of people out there who said, you know, this is not, this is not, this is not good doctrine. There were plenty of other educated people inside and outside of the church who understood that the sale of indulgences was a sort of pseudo-pious scam concocted by the papacy to separate naive Germans from their money. There was nothing necessarily Protestant about Luther's attack on indulgences. Other people had said similar things before. And when Luther wrote the treatise defending his 95 theses, he dedicated it to the Pope. But because of the first information superhighway, the miracle of movable type printing adopted in Europe shortly before Luther's birth, the arguments raised by Luther were quickly circulated throughout Germany and beyond. Plus, there were plenty of ordinary Germans who weren't so naive as the Pope thought they were. At first, Leo seemed baffled by what was going on in Germany. Maybe it's just some squabble among monastic orders. Maybe the Augustinians and the Dominicans were mad at each other or something, you know. The problem with Leo was that, as somebody said, he would have made a pretty good pope if he had only been a little religious. He's a typical Renaissance pope. He, just, he, he, he was clueless. But when the sale of indulgences virtually ceased, you know, the light went on. Oh, okay, yeah, there's something. So I have got to do something about this. One problem was that the Catholic Church had never spelled out what the doctrine of indulgences was. And it's always handy, before you call somebody a heretic, to have the orthodoxy spelled out so you can say, yeah, you're, not, you're violating it. So that, that was something that could have been done right away. If Leo X had quickly defined the doctrine of indulgences in a way that was actually done the next, in the next few years, at least excluding the idea of dropping the coin in the chest and somebody's going from purgatory to heaven, if he had just done that, it's possible he could have uh, nipped the Reformation in the bud. But he was either, I hate to say he's dumb, he just was sort of clueless about where he was. He just figured he could do it by, by stealth, and that was a mistake. Alternately, if Leo could have gotten his hands on Luther and could have killed him or imprisoned him, that too might have ended the Reformation before it got a fair start. Of course, that sort of thing had happened before, on the left there is uh, the burning of Huss, and on the right is the execution of Tyndall. But try as he might, a complicated political situation prevented Leo from snagging Luther. This is one of those slides where I sat there and looked at it and said, do I really want to t talk to them about the political situation in, in the Holy Roman Empire? No, I'm not going to do that. Meanwhile, Luther continued to study the Bible and to take note of the practical consequences of the doctrine of grace in the process becoming truly Protestant in doctrine. 
1518, Luther realized that the Greek word translated do penance in the Latin Vulgate actually meant repent. In 1519, Luther argued that the Pope was fallible, that the church councils could err, and that scripture was the ultimate divine authority. In 1520, he declared that there were only two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And also in 1520, he denied the substance of the bread and wine and the Lord's Supper were transformed into the body and blood of Christ. Luther's assault on the Catholic sacraments was a really big deal to early modern Europeans. This was, this was, this, this was something that got everybody's attention. The Dutch humanist Erasmus, who hoped to find some middle ground between Luther and the Pope, thought Luther's attack on the sacraments made the breach irreparable. Papal representatives who debated with Luther between the time of the 95 Theses and the Diet of Worms hardly discussed indulgences at all. Why? Because once you call the Pope the Antichrist, nobody really cares about indulgences anymore. <laughs> it's a big deal. By the way, they, people think that when he called the Pope the Antichrist, he was being rhetorical, you know. No, no, he really believed he was the Antichrist. After Luther debated the Catholic Cardinal Cajetan in 1518, Cajetan asked Staupitz to try to get Luther to recant. Staupitz said, I have often tried, but I am not equal to him in ability and command of the scripture. You are the Pope's representative. It's up to you. <laughs> Cajetan replied, I'm not going to talk with him anymore. His eyes are as deep as a lake, and there are amazing speculations in his head. Meanwhile, the Pope had to behave warily. He needed German military assistance to check the power of both Francis I, King of France, and research in Islam under the rule of Suleiman the Magnificent. And it's hard, it's, it's hard to believe, but, the, but Islam was on the move. I mean, we're, we're talking about he conquered the, the, Suleiman conquered Hungary, and he sieged Vienna, Austria. That's how close they were. They were knocking on the door of Western Europe here. Furthermore, in 1518, the current Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, was clearly dying. By the way, notice he's got the Habsburg jaw. Perhaps not as pronounced here. Um, maybe the, I'm always a little, you know, where because artists would, would try to make people look better than they actually look. In any case, temporarily, Luther's own ruler and his protector, Frederick the Wise, the elector of Saxony, had a great deal of influence in Germany. Only after Maximilian's grandson, Charles V, the King of Spain, was elected Holy Roman Emperor in 1520, did it look like the empire might finally take a hard line against Luther. Charles V took the advice of the Pope's representative called Annuncio, a man named Aleander, to order the burning of Luther's books in the Low Countries, that's Charles' home territory, I said something about Charles being a bright guy. He was born in Flanders. His first language was French. He became king of Spain. The people in Spain were annoyed with him because he didn't speak Spanish, so he learned it. And then he was basically elected, you know, emperor of, of Germany. So, I mean, here, he, he's got all these, plus, you, you know, you got your Latin in there, too. Charles thought in French. When he took notes, when he took notes, when he took notes at the at the uh, Diet of Worms, 
they were in French. And uh, here he is, uh, what? He's king of Spain. He's sitting, he's emperor of Germany. He's taking his, he's taking his notes in French. However, when Oleander suggested that Charles do the same thing in Germany, that is, ban Luther's books and destroy them, Charles was reluctant to cross Frederick the Wise, who urged instead that Luther be given a hearing at the emperor's first diet, meeting at Worms in January 1521. Oleander remained unhappy. Why should this heretic Luther be given an opportunity to speak before the German princes? The whole business was a church matter that shouldn't have anything to do with the, with the state at all. Do you realize how odd this is, that, that Luther is appearing before a body of, of men who are mostly, not entirely, but mostly secular princes or their representatives? If you think about it, if you think about the pastor being accused of heresy and, and he's taken, they say, okay, well, well, we'll check up on this when we have the next Presbyterian meeting. And the pastor said, no, I, I think I'd rather appeal to the legislature of South Carolina. You go, what? Well, that's exactly what Oleander was saying here. You know, why should he, why should he be speaking to these princes? Of course, there was a real, there was a different, it's, the situation was different. There was much more connection between church and state. And the princes had real power. If Luther could convince him, obviously, the church was going to be in trouble. Eventually, Charles summoned Luther to Worms, but gave him no right to argue on behalf of the contents of his books. He's just supposed to appear, apologize to everybody, and leave. That's a, that was the idea. However, along with the summons to appear, Charles did give Luther a letter of safe conduct to and from Wittenberg. So the, the document on the top part of the slide is the summons for him to appear, and the one on the bottom is the safe conduct with all this fancy calligraphy that they were doing. And now, more unhappy Aleander published in forms an edict against Luther's books in the name of the emperor. Wittenberg to Forms is a pretty long trip. I've drawn a line on the slide there. It's um, about 320 miles, which Luther traveled in a three-horse carriage with four or five other men, depending on where, when in the trip you're talking about. What's really interesting is that large groups of people came out to see him. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I, if I were going to write this as a scholarly paper or something, I would check it a lot more carefully. But I think he's the first person in world history where this happened. People came out to see kings or conquering heroes or whatever, but not guys who wrote books. I think this is the first time anybody showed up in large groups to see, hey, this guy wrote this pamphlet of this book. I think so. Oleander complained that Luther, that Luther was pictured with a halo and a dove above his head. The people kissed these pictures. Such a quantity had been sold that I was not able to obtain one. So here's, here's Luther with the dove over his head. When Luther was first brought before the Diet on April 17, 1521, he was asked whether the books on the table were his. He said, yes, almost inaudibly, and I've written more. But when asked when they, whether he would care to reject a part of them, he replied, this touches God and his word. I beg you, give me time to think about it. And the people in charge said, say what? You traveled 320 miles to get here? You weren't thinking about what we might ask you? I mean, he's like, 
Okay, okay. You give you 24 hours, come back tomorrow. So the upshot was that on the following day, there were so many people wanted to hear what the answer was, and I had to get a larger hall. And it was so crowded that almost nobody but the emperor got to sit. And it's never pictured this way in art. There's always plenty of space in art. But in the real thing, everybody was crammed in and standing, waiting for this to, to happen. Standing room only crowd. So um, I have a little clip from YouTube here. It's very good, actually. Um, the words that Luther's going to say are the real words. Now, it's, they've cut out some. It's three, because they've got to get it to three minutes. But I think it's, it's worth seeing. So now we're going to see whether when I push the button it actually plays from YouTube, okay? Most Serene Majesty and Your Lordships may deign to note that my books are not all of the same kind. For there are some in which I have discussed religious faith and morals simply, so that even my enemies themselves are compelled to admit that these are useful. Even the bull although harsh and cruel, admits that some of my books are inoffensive. Allowing them to be condemned is utterly monstrous. Thus, if I should begin to disavow them, I ask you, what would I be doing? Would not I, alone of all men, be condemning the very truth upon which friends and enemies equally agree? I have written another book against some distinguished individuals, those, namely, who strive to preserve the Roman tyranny. Against these, I confess, I have been more violent than my religion or profession demands, but then I do not set myself up as a saint. Therefore, your most serene majesty, expose my errors. Overthrow them by the writings of the prophets and the evangelists. If I am shown my errors, I will be the first to throw my books on the fire. I commend myself to your majesty, humbly asking that I not be allowed, through the agitation of mine enemies, to be made hateful to you. I have spoken. Since you desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. Unless I am convinced by scripture or clear reason my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. 
May God help me. Amen. The drama was lessened a bit by the fact that Luther, who had been speaking in German, was asked to repeat the whole thing in Latin. <laughs> he apparently by this time was sweating, you know, with the emotion. Notice anything missing from Luther's speech? Here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. Wonderful phrase. Again, it, nobody wrote it down. I, the first time it appeared in print, it appeared in print, but it, nobody who was there actually wrote it down. So what happened there? I don't know. I'm, I'm actually, I'm more, I'm, I'm sort of lean more to that he actually said something like that um, than I am about him posting the 95 Thesis on the door. I, th I think one of the possibilities is that people were so overtaken by his emotion that they stop writing. I think, because I've, I've been that way myself where I've heard somebody say something really dramatic and I just, okay. Or the other possibility is he said it in one language and not the other. Maybe that's the deal. So, But I don't think he did it, you know, like, like this picture up here. Here I stand. I think it was more like, here I stand. I can't do anything else. You know, this is the only thing I can do. In any case, Charles V, in part using uh, material pre prepared by Oleander, waited until the supporters of Luther had left the Diet of Worms, um, and then had those people who remained condemn Luther. And, and then the final step was he backdated the resulting edict of Worms to make it look like everybody who was there had supported it. So it was, the whole thing was kind of fraudulent at the end. So here's, here's a uh, quotation from the edict of Worms. He is, it's very long, by the way. It's, it's, it's a long, decent-sized pamphlet. He has sullied marriage, disparaged confession, and denied the body and blood of our Lord. He is pagan in his denial of free will. This devil in the habit of a monk has brought together ancient errors into one stinking puddle and has invented new ones. When the time is up, no one is to harbor him. His followers are to be condemned. His books are to be eradicated from the memory of man. By the way, I don't know if anybody took a look over at the actual um, edict itself, but if there's anybody here who's, who looked at it, you said, wait a second, that's not in Latin, that's French, and this is the emperor's own. It got translated from his own French into Latin and German. As an outlaw, anyone who captured or killed Luther would be rewarded by the government authorities for doing a good work. That's also in the edict. Notice there's no mention of indulgences, and nobody really cares at this point. Though Charles V desperately wanted to get rid of Luther, the emperor didn't dare violate his own safe conduct and seize and ex execute Luther on the spot, which is what had happened to John Huss. When they ruled that he was a heretic, they just said, well, you know, we made a deal, but heretics, are, it, you, you can't make a deal with heretics, so too bad, you're dead. 
But when Luther headed back to Wittenberg, he was waylaid by a party of supporters who pretended to be highwaymen. They hid Luther in, in Wartburg castle, castle within walking distance of where he had gone to school in Eisenach. I actually wanted to see how close it was, and it's, you can actually, I, I pretended I was a tourist, and I wanted to go from the school to the, to the castle. It's about, it's about three miles, so walking distance. At the castle, Luther grew a beard and posed as a knight, spending his time translating the New Testament in, into German, and in the process, creating a standard German language. Uh, I realize he doesn't have a beard here. That's, you know, people don't, don't want to see him with a beard, but, but he did. Um, the business about the German language, he did, he, he molded the German language with his Bible more than the King James Version did with English. That's how, what a, I bet you, who here has a German Bible? Anybody here have a German Bible? So does it say Martin Luther on the, so it, it's this German Bible still says Martin Luther translated, even that they've had revisions along the way. If you look in the front front page, most German Bibles will have Martin Luther as a translator there on the front on the first page. So his his variety of German became German. I couldn't pass without giving one piece of Luther's humor. I have undertaken to translate the Bible into German. This was good for me. Otherwise, I might have died in the mistaken notion that I was a learned fellow. <laughs> For the next few years, Luther was always in danger of being captured and killed, but it never happened. As soon as Charles V subdued one imperial enemy, others seemed to pop up, and he was never, never able to crush, crush the Protestants. In 1556, at the age of 55, Charles, then the most powerful man in the world, ruler of the global Spanish Empire, gave up and abdicated all his offices and retired to a Spanish monastery. Incapacitated by various ailments, in particular gout caused by immoderate eating, and so riddled by pain that he had to be carried around in sedan chairs or in litters, he finally died in 1558. So what's to be said about the importance of the Diet of Worms? We will continue to memorialize October 31st, 1517, that's as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But in some sense, the Diet of Forms in 1521 marked the true beginning of the Reformation. By then, Luther had a clear understanding of the doctrines of grace. The Pope and the institutional church had missed its best chance for squelching the Reformation. By 1521, Luther was both excommunicated, had been both excommunicated by the church and outlawed by the empire. He was therefore compelled to appear, to appeal directly to the people of Germany. Luther initially believed his condemnation at the Diet of Worms would be the end of his life and the end of the Reformation, but it ultimately proved to be merely the end of the beginning of the Reformation. Anybody have questions for me? Can't give you a quiz.
Yeah, the the speech had to be, I mean, you know, it's meant for public consumption, so they shortened it. Between, the, there's two, actually it's part of two different speeches in between it. The, the I, I don't know whether it's Oleander, but one of the one of the men there said, we asked for an answer, give us an answer about whether you're going to recant or not. And that's that's the second part of the speech. So, yeah, they just cut it down. That's right. The easy way to answer that is to say yes. Um, he feared uh, causing complete division, and he needed the support of the German princes to fight to fight Suleiman the Magnificent and Francis I, and all the, that's you know that all had to be done. So basically, he couldn't take the chance. That otherwise, he would have. That's, that's a great point, and it's something that I debated when I was thinking about putting this together tonight. Is, should I really talk about this? That, the, that his supporters didn't care too much about, about justification by faith. They were interested in, I mean, when, when Luther said the Pope is the Antichrist, there were people like, yeah, that's right, we've been saying this for a long time. Uh, there were lots of people who, who were, I think if you were here and heard the pastor talk about this, Certainly, people in our own day, if you could talk about, if you said the word Donald Trump or vaccination or whatever, there'd be people jumping around and getting really excited about that. If you want to talk about the eternal welfare of your soul, <laughs> there are a lot fewer people who are interested in that. And that's exactly what's going on here. People are just concerned about the politics and not about salvation. Just as short-sighted back then as they are now. When you say Luther molded the German language, what was the language in Germany like before? Everybody had their own dialect, so yeah, so. It's really interesting to me that after he said this in German, of course his own German, that they asked him to repeat it in Latin. And I assume that they wouldn't have done that unless there were lots of people there that couldn't understand what he said. Everybody who was learned, of course, had, would know Latin to some degree anyway. Yes? Yeah, he, he, if you read, you say, this guy is, he is, he is, he's there, you know, he's, he understands the, 
that it's Christ's sacrifice that that gives us justification. He, he's, he's just at the very lip of here. So, you know, it's one of those things where you, you like to judge somebody's salvation from that kind of distance. I'd hate to say this guy really understood. He's really in heaven. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's a very interesting person. Right, right. Well, like I said, he, Luther said later, if it hadn't been for Salfitz, he would be in hell. That's what he said. Yes. Yeah, that's something else. I obviously, you know, you have, you figure out how much you're going to have time to talk about, and I didn't talk about the trip to Rome, but he went to Rome. And there he found the worldliness. He was dismayed by the worldliness of the clergy there in Rome, where it was all sort of a game. And um, Of course, there's a, this great story about him climbing on his knees on the holy steps, the sacred steps. And, and you got so many... The, the sign is still there. I've actually been there. Um, the sign is still there telling you how many days out of purgatory you get by climbing on your knees and I I did not and you can't and you can't go up the stairs on your feet that I mean they prohibit you or at least when I was there they kept you from walking up the stairs on your feet you, there was a sideway you could get up to go to the top so that's what I did I got up to the top and watched everybody else crawl up on their knees <laughs> but there's I you get so many days out of purgatory for for doing that and the story is that when Luther got to the top after crawling up on his knees, that he said, well, I hope it's true. You know, it's like... So, I, you know, there's lots of stories that I just didn't stick in because I just figured I wouldn't have time. So. Now, the first, first thing you have to do is you have to define what your doctrine is. And so eventually they did that at the Council of Trent. So, Mark, you want to say something about the Council of Trent?
<laughs> it's it's quite a bit later. You know, we're we're talking a couple generations, so it takes them a while. Well, we know what Luther believed because he was prolific. I mean, he just, and, and the printing press spread it widely. So anything he said, we know pretty well, um, you know, what he believed. So that's, that's pretty certain. The dramatic stories are a little, a little harder to put your finger on. There were, there were people actually writing everything down. That's why the problem with here I stand is, is a problem because nobody wrote it down right then. But when it first appeared in print in German, he's there in German saying, here I stand. So, If you go to Worms today, or at least when I was there, there was a, there was a stone in the ground that said, this is where he stood when he said it. You know, you could, so I stood on the, stood on the spot. <laughs> Oh, okay, thank you. So, so after Luther's death, after Luther's death. You've been a great audience. Thank you. <laughs> well, can I, first of all, just thank Dr. Matsko for, for giving us a some of us a refresher, some of you perhaps a, a first introduction, a taste of what happened 500 years ago. I was thinking the same as he said often, we think of 1517. And in one sense, whatever happened then, you know, there was a, there was a starting of the fight. Uh, whether Luther realized it or not, he's starting a fight um, by the direction he's going. But it's one thing to start a fight, it's another to still be standing when it comes to the end. And I think part of the expectation, the, the Pope had already, he'd already been excommunicated, I think December the previous year, 1520, he had received the papal bull, you're excommunicated, he had burned it, and um, then he's brought into this more political uh, environment where the expectation was, I think, uh, others I think agree, uh, with the presence of the, those that were there, the princes, the emperor and everything, he's just going to, he's going to recant. Just, you just turn up, he'll recant. He won't dare not. And uh, there already was talking, there was, I think there were signs about with Huss as he's making his way there. There's sort of indications because Huss had said, you know, kill this goose and a swan will appear. You know, it's, there's some line about that. And people had already sort of, seen Luther as this swan that Huss had said, if you kill me, a swan will arise to carry on. Um, Luther kind of had adopted that. I don't know at what point, but there's definitely indications of him being aligned with Huss uh, at that time. And I think he was embracing that. But people thought, just like Huss will give you safe passage, you know, <laughs> it was, he was gone. And the threat of that would have weighed 
on Luther as well. If I take my stand here, it will be off with my head. And the, the whole scene of it designed to create a sense of awe and pomp and fear, ultimately, to get him to recant, which, of course, he doesn't. He sleeps on it, comes back, takes a stand, and uh, he stood at the end of the fight, but that was the end of the beginning, as our brother put it, and in some ways, in some ways more significant than 1517 and what was going on there, and opened the door, opened the floodgates for others to take the same stand. Paul talks about that. You know, his stand had led to courage being instilled in others. And Luther's stand in the most awesome environment as that, his stand put steel into the backbone of others, which shows you our need, every one of us, to take our stand as and when is needed, not just for our own sakes and our own conscience, but what it does in the conscience, the mind, the hearts of others that observe. Because you never know how God is going to take and use the stand that each of us takes. So uh, get into your history. Familiarize yourselves with these things. Rejoice in how God uh, mercifully used these events to shape even our modern world and, and delight in his mercies in this way. So I think that brings it to a close for tonight. We'll see some of you in the morning. And if you have any other questions, I'm sure Dr. Matsko will be happy uh, to receive those questions and answer them for you. And uh, again, we appreciate his labor uh, tonight for us. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord. Our Father, we're thankful again this evening for the blessing, the blessings that have flowed down to us because men and women at times took a stand for Jesus Christ. Lord, as we receive many blessings that would never have come to us, at least not in the way that they have come to us, unless men like Luther took the stand that they did, we pray that we would therefore in our own day take the stand that we ought to take. Deliver us from even that kind of mentality, the, the, the mentality of the, of the populace that simply want to be against something and are known for what they're against. Help us also be known, to be known by what we're for. Luther was for the centrality of the gospel. He was for justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And whatever we're known to be against, may we also, and even more importantly, be known to be for our Lord Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and men. We pray then that thou wilt enrich our souls with what we have considered this evening and bring us back again tomorrow on the Lord's Day to continue to feed and to rejoice in thy mercies to us. Part us in thy fear and with thy favor. Be with us even in our own discussions one with the other here before we leave. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen. Thank you.